Well, we're going to look uh, very briefly tonight at um, St. Nicholas. Um, St. Nicholas, uh, not to be confused, Nicholas of Myra, not to be confused with Nicholas of Lyra, who was another important uh, um, theologian. Uh, not to be confused with Nicholas of Cusa, the, the bishop and philosopher. In fact, history is replete with, with Nicholas's. Nikolai. I don't know what the plural of Nicholas is. Um, there are many, many Nicholases, and uh, Nicholas of Myra was certainly unique. When we talk about um, St. Nicholas, we're talking about a man both of fact and of fiction. That's, that's a given. And we have to approach him as such. On the one extreme, we have this, the, the Santa Claus myth, um, uh, Sinterklaas. This is really uh, came through the, the Dutch people. Uh, Sinterklaas came to the Dutch and came into the Americas. Uh, in fact, if you go to the Netherlands today uh, and they have their big Christmas parade, when Sinterklaas comes, he still has his his, uh, his Episcopal mitre on uh, and his red clothes. He's very much still linked to. Um, to Nicholas of Myra, although uh, much more mythical, and uh, of course uh, Santa Claus. So on the one hand on on we have that, uh, on, on the other hand we have, I suppose, not really on the other hand, but in the same vein we have a lot of hag what's called hagiography, um, storytelling, telling us embellishing the works of an individual, making him seem really, really holy by any numbers of, of miracles uh, and wonders, and fanciful tales. There's a, there's a lot of that stuff going on. In fact, uh, St. Nick's bones are a hot commodity in Europe, and you can go to many churches and find a finger, uh, a bit of a finger or a bit of a head, um, uh, where you can go and, and uh, you know, as, as legend has it, um, it, it gives forth a certain uh, myrrh-like fluid um, that can heal and restore people if you get it at the right time. Uh, in fact, they're, they're so interested in the bones of St. Nick that I think they reconstructed his face, like, like scientifically. They took the bones. His bones were stolen um, out of Myra and brought to Italy um, because they were afraid that when the, the uh, Muslim invasion was taking over the Byzantine Empire, that they'd no longer have access to uh, Nicholas's bones. And so a bunch of pirates or, or zealots uh, went down to America. <laughs> Dug up his grave, took as many bones as they could before they got caught, and and trucked back to uh, to Italy, and uh, and they they planted them there. So we have we have his bones, and they've actually put together scientifically. I think uh, BBC a number of years ago put out a, a show on this. Um, they put together his face, and the real face of Santa Claus, uh, and we know that he was kind of five foot six and and, and all all this stuff. Um, So um, there's a lot of there's a lot of hagiography, lots of tales of supernatural feats, just like we have with many other saints. So if you read uh, the tales of Saint Francis of Assisi, there's lots of fanciful stuff going on there that just reads like legend. It reads like legend, um, and we should take it as such. But then we have the true man. We do have the true man, and. He, the, the scholarly consensus is that there was indeed uh, a Nicholas of Myra who was the Bishop of Myra. That, that's generally taken to be historical fact. Even though it's dim, 
there's enough pieces of evidence that we can say, yes, indeed, he was a real bishop um, in Myra, which was a very important city in modern-day Turkey. So if you go um, to the very south of Turkey, it's a port city uh, on the Mediterranean. And there's a couple important things about Myra. Um, number one, the Apostle Paul went there. The Apostle Paul went to Myra on his way to Rome. Acts 27.5 And when he had sailed across the open sea uh, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. So Myra, Myra was the really the capital city of like, the province of Lycia. And um, Turkey, as you know, was a very, very, it was kind of the, in some ways, the hinterland that Paul would go to. Uh, but increasingly an important place, and Myra was a very important city. And I don't know what Paul did there. In Acts 27, we read that they changed ships. The centurion had to find a different ship for Paul uh, to, to, to get him on his way to Rome. So we don't know how long Paul stayed in Myra. Um, but I don't think finding another ship was just, <laughs> you know, well, there's one, let's go let's <laughs> grab that one. I mean, I think the, the intimation there is that he spent some time there. I don't know what he did. But knowing Paul, I'm pretty sure <laughs> that he, he, he gossiped the gospel and he shared Jesus with people. And so it's, it's really interesting that we have this, this apostolic gospel moment in Myra. And I just think it's, it's wonderful to think, to speculate what kind of, what kind of um, connections, from, even from that moment, led up, to, led up to this man of God, Nicholas. The second interesting thing about Myra um, comes from a tradition. Tradition tells us that the first bishop of Myra was a guy by the name of uh, Nicander. Nicander was ordained by a certain bishop from Crete, which is across the water. A bishop from Crete that we all know very well by the name of Titus. <laughs> and so Titus ordained the first bishop of Myra, um, Titus seems to have ended his career uh, on Crete, and, and uh, tradition tells us that he died there in Crete, but he was going across the water and he was doing evangelistic work there as well. So we have Paul, Paul's uh, handwork in Myra, and we have Titus's handwork uh, on Myra. Uh, and again, it's a very important uh, uh, port city. Somewhere towards the end of the third century, somewhere towards the end of the third century, in the beginning of the 4th century, Nicholas was ordained a bishop of this very important metropolitan city. Um, we don't know how, we don't know by whom he was ordained as a bishop, but we, we know that he was ordained as a bishop. And it's not a, it's not a, this isn't a, it's not like Summerland, right? Myra was not, not a Summerland, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell the soldiers I said that. But the, the uh, or, or the known. But um, it's an important city. Uh, now we're told, we're told that Nicholas was imprisoned under the persecution of Diocletian. Mm -hmm. If you know anything about the, the persecutions of the first few centuries in, in, in that uh, Asia Minor, you know that they were sporadic, they were periodic, and they were localized until Diocletian comes, and then it's a variable bloodbath. Mm -hmm. um, he was doing some some an auger. He was doing a ritual auger where they look at animal uh, guts, animal livers, and the signs were bad. And someone told Diocletian that some of the Christians had crossed themselves while while <laughs> while they were doing this. The sign of the cross was way bad, 
um, and it, it started it started his whole his whole persecution against the faith. Um, so it was very severe. Uh, Nicholas was in prison until at least three thirteen. Some of you historians know what happens in 313 is the Edict of Milan. Constantine comes into power. The Edict of Milan puts an end to persecution in the empire. And so he's in prison for a significant amount of time, released after 313. Um, and it's subsequent to this moment, his release from prison, um, that I just want to say three things about Nicholas now. Um, I don't know if I'm being true to my three-minute English uh, homily here. Three things about Nicholas that we can take to heart tonight. Number one, orthodoxy matters. Nicholas, as the bishop of Myra, this important city, port city, metropolitan city, was called to the council of, of, of Nicaea. Uh, so there are over 200 bishops. Now, we don't have Nicholas's name on the original lists, um, but we have subsequent historians telling us that Nicholas was there. Um, and it just makes sense that he was there because Myra was such a, was a it was an important place. Um, it was less likely for bishops of the West to be there um, because they were just the, 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 the Latin Westerns were just the ignorant barbarians, um, and so there were a few guys from the West, but nearly all of them from the East were there. And you know, I think we can we can bank on it that Nicholas was at Nicaea. Well, we have the traditional story that when Nicholas met Arius, when Nicholas heard what Arius had to say about Jesus, and you know the progression, right? In, in, in the first few centuries, you have, you have this very strong uh, theology of Christ being developed right from the beginning. So Justin Martyr, second century, in the 100s, uh, Justin Martyr develops a very strong theology of Christ as the wisdom of God, the Logos. Um, and uh, once once he kind of develops this concept of Christ as God, you have Sibelius coming along. Sibelianism, saying, no, 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 none of that uh, logos stuff, none of that word stuff, none of that wisdom stuff. God and his word are one and the same. Christ was just a very inspired man. And then you have Origen coming in later on, Origen kind of pushing... Justin Martyr's strong Christology. No, the wisdom of God, the word of God, the hypostasis of God. He talks about the hypostasis, and then comes back, the pendulum spins back this way, and then you have Paul of Samosata coming after him saying, no, 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 and developing a, what's called modalism. It just, it's just kind of expressions of the, of the same thing. And then after Paul of Samosata, Arius comes in, and he, he starts repeating this attack on Christ as the word and the wisdom of God. And Arius says this famous phrase, there was a time when Christ was not. There was a time when Christ was not. That is, he's a, he's a created being. Which is what, by the way, Mormons believe. Which is what JWs believe. Um, it, and and uh, was really what, the, what, what all kind of uh, skeptics of Christianity believe. That, that he's a, just a creature, uh, like we are. Um, when Nicholas was at the Council of Nicaea, when the, all of this was brought to a head, and you have to you have to realize here that the Council of Nicaea, very important moment, we got our creed out of it. Arianism won the day. We got the creed, but the Arians won. Athanasius goes to sleep one night and he wakes up in the whole world Arian. It all turned. It was very very popular. 
just like it's becoming today. So Rowan Williams, in his preposterous book, he says that actually Arius was, was, a, was a conservative biblical scholar. He was just trying to make protect the Bible language from, from the liberal uh, philosophers up there. Um, it's not true. Um, so it, it, was a, it was a very sensitive moment. And when, when Nicholas apparently hears what Arius has to say about Jesus, he got so angry. He got so angry that he punched him in the face. <laughs> There's a wonderful portrait of, of, uh, of him. Well, some say he smacked him. Some say he punched him. Some say he slapped him. Um, but there's a picture of, yeah, there's a picture of, of Arius kind of just really backing, totally shocked, like, oh my goodness, that, uh, I'm, just, I'm just being punched. Um, <laughs> now, we're not going to go around punching people, that's not what we do, but, but we do believe that doctrine matters, orthodoxy matters, these things matter to us. And St. Paul says to us, 2 Timothy 4, I charge you. Timothy, for the time is going to come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine. They're going to have itching ears, and they're going to start looking for teachers that will suit their passions, what, what their, their passions in life. That's where we are today, right? We have people looking for teachers who will complement their passions rather than, than staying true to the Word of God. When, when Paul tells Timothy what his job is, he gives him three Three verbs. Uh, this is your job, Timothy. It's to reprove. It's to rebuke. It's to exhort. Why? Because the people around you aren't going to want to listen, and you need to confront them with the word of God. And so, what we can learn from Eric, from from uh, um, Nicholas, number one, is that orthodoxy matters, and it deserves our passion. It deserves a passionate response from us. It deserves a commitment from us. Not just sitting back and kind of letting bygones be bygones. We have to, we have to fight for the faith. We, we really do, um, and, and uh, we learn that from Nicholas. Secondly, wonders still matter. Orthodoxy still matters. Wonders still matter. Now, I say that with with uh, a great degree of caution. There are a whole number of stories about Nicholas as a thaumaturgos, Nic uh, Nicholas thaumaturgos, Nicholas the wonder worker. Um, praying for people. There's a story of a sailor. He's on a ship in a storm. Um, the sailor was up trying to tie the mast so that it wouldn't break, and he fell down to the deck. Died. You know, broke his neck on the deck. Sailors are are, are just at wit's end. Um, Nicholas comes. He prays. He prays for the man. He comes back to life. And the story of children dying. He prays for them to come back to life. There's very sick people that he prays for. This is why they're so interested in his bones, because of all the reported stories of, of wonder workers. Um, now, I don't. I, I think that uh, you know, I, I reason to believe that much of this is legend. But it's it's easy to kind of write off the legendary stories about what Nicholas did, and forget that wonders still matter because God is a God of wonders. You read in Exodus, "Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods?" Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? God does wonders. And when we look to a God um, to be involved in our lives, to be involved in our church, to be involved in our city, he's a God who does wonders. And if we can, if we can write off some of those St. Nicholas feats, 
then we should not write off the God who steps into time and space and does wonders for us, truly wonderful things. And he asks us to be expectant for the wonderful. That's a lovely idea. Um, and, and we should remember that when we think of St. Nick, when we think of December 6th, you should remember not so much the, 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 the Nicholas of the wonders, but the God of the God is Thaumaturgos. He's the wonder worker. He wakes us up every morning. He wakes us up every morning. And he says, I will do wonders for you. If you'll just let me. If you'll let me into your life, I will do I will work wonders for you. That's a that's an important thing to remember. Thirdly, charity still matters. Orthodoxy still matters. Wonders still matter. Charity still matters. In fact, charity is still the most important thing. Faith, hope, love. The greatest of these things is love. There are a, a number of beautiful stories. Again, if they're not true, they're well invented. Of him saving children. Children, daughters who would have had to go into prostitution. If, if the, the legend tells us that Nicholas came from a very rich household. His uncle was very, very rich. He died, and Nicholas took his inheritance. And Nicholas spent his life taking that inheritance, not using it on himself, but using it on those that he encountered. And so one story in particular, a father with two or three daughters, and he had no dowry for them. And without a dowry at that time, the daughters would either have to just go into abject poverty or and or prostitution. And uh, Nicholas, having been made aware of this, the story goes that he took bags of gold and he threw them uh, in, into the household with their names on it for the girls, without knowing who it was done by, right? Not like from St. Nick, uh, <laughs> but just uh, here you go. Um, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, that you that you by his poverty might become rich. Now it's easy for us, it's wonderful to read that and take it to heart and be thankful for it. But then remember, we are called to be like Christ. The goal of our the goal of our journey is not justification by faith. The goal of our journey is being justified. Now we're made like Jesus. And this principle of Jesus, being rich. He gives away so that others might be enriched by, by himself. Um, by his poverty, by, by surrendering himself into poverty, we become rich. Um, I think, brothers and sisters, that we need to take this 2 Corinthians 8 9 and we need to apply it to us. That's who Christ is. That's what Christ does. This is what Christ calls us to do, to be like him. And especially around Christmas season, it's not about, it's not about, um, yeah, it's very easy. I, I know it is. It's very easy to just accumulate, bring stuff in. Um, but we're called to be like Christ like this. And we're called to be like St. Nicholas in this. Charity is still man. And it's still the most important thing. We can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. We can understand all mysteries. We can even give our bodies to be burned. But without charity, it doesn't mean and, uh, so let's think of ways this Christmas season that we can follow the example of St. Nick, that we can give ourselves to charity, um, that we can think of the God who still works wonders, and we can remember that orthodoxy matters, and we have to commit ourselves to it, and we put in a plot for the new year, we're going to continue with our third non-article study, because orthodoxy still matters.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for St. Nicholas. We thank you for his life. We believe um, that he's with you now, Lord, in, in rest. And we regret tonight, we're blessed are those who die in the Lord. We thank you for your grace to St. Nicholas. And uh, we pray that you would make us, Lord, people who fight for orthodoxy. We pray that you make us people who um, believe that you are a wonder-working God. Help us to be people who love fiercely and devotedly, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.